Hello and welcome to Political Traction. According to Christian Freeland's recent speech at Washington's Brookings Institute, the end of history is history. Canada and like-minded liberal democracies need to work together to integrate supply chains and cut out bad actors like Russia and China. But what does that mean for Canadian consumers? And does the rest of her party agree? I'm Adam Owen, joined today by the Toronto Star's Ottawa Bureau Chief and economics columnist, Heather Schofield. Heather spoke with us to unpack recent announcements by senior Liberal cabinet members that could show where this government is taking Canada on the world stage and at home. This is Political Traction. Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So Heather, a few weeks ago, Freeland gave this speech in New York at the Brookings Institute. Who was this speech for? Was it for senior liberal leaders and donors or the hiring committee at the IMF or NATO? Um, You know, ostensibly it was for the the Brookings Institute. Uh, Freeland was down in Washington for a whole bunch of meetings. Um, The IMF, uh, like they have biannual meetings, they have G7, they have G20. um, And it was the first time that those, uh, the finance ministers and all the central bankers had met fully in person to do all the G20 was there too, actually. Um, So there were a whole bunch of her colleagues uh, there. And so she was um, hitting a lot of uh, audiences all at the same time. Um, you know, there's a, there are a lot of rumors about Freeland and where her next steps will be. And I, I don't know if she knows. I, I certainly don't know. Um, uh, you know, there are all these rumors about her jumping to an international organization. And I would just say that, you know, the world is her oyster in that respect. I mean, if she wants to be the head of an international organization, if there's an opening, I mean, why wouldn't they consider her? Um, I don't think necessarily, though, that that was, you know, that it was a job application in that in that sense. I think she's been talking about these ideas um, for some time. She's been talking to her colleagues, especially Janet Yellen at the in at the White House um, uh, by Biden's side uh, about some of these um, some of these concepts that she was putting forward. In fact, some of them come from Janet Yellen herself. And so what she did at that broken speech was tie a whole bunch of ideas together um, and make it also relevant to Canada. And so, you know, she's putting out a vision there that I think was also meant for, very much for, for a domestic audience. Um, but at the same time, she was also kind of promoting Canada, you know, when she's talking about critical minerals and 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 the, um, you know, the 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 potential that international investors could see in 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 Canada if we go the, you know, down the 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 path that she was suggesting. So, is this the position of of the government or or of Christian Freeland? So it depends what you mean by this position. Um, you know, so she's talking about. Let's just go back to basics here a little bit. What is she talking about? She's talking about um, friend shoring, um, which is she describes as as kind of uh, you know reorienting your trade and investment patterns and your dip- diplomatic patterns so that you deal with your friends, you prioritize your friends, and you deprioritize your uh, countries led by autocratic leaders. And um, so she's talking about Russia and China there. She she mentioned them by name. Um, Russia, obviously, she's mentioned by she mentioned by name every day. Um, China it was lumped in with with Russia, which is kind of controversial. 
Um, and then, you know, that there are a whole bunch of countries in the middle there that she that they're not necessarily fully democratic um, and not necessarily as autocratic as as Russia and China. And she talked a little bit about what Canada should do with them, too, but very much dividing up the world into whether or not we deal with them based on their values and also um, kind of recognizing that. You know, the the consensus uh, that we've had since the Berlin Wall fell that um, the world will come along with our values, um, you know, that the liberal liberal democracy is the way to go and that the whole world is going to see that um, because they'll see uh, if we engage with them, they'll, they'll, they'll see how great it is and they'll see how prosperous we are. And that she, she, you know, what she laid that idea to rest, which was actually I found to be um, kind of it was pretty blunt, right? And it was uh, she was kind of sorrowful about that, um, but yeah, certainly that, not backing away that, from her embrace of liberal democracy by any means. <laughs> that's the world that I grew up in, and it seems like over the past few years and over the past few months specifically, um, that what what we're really seeing is that we're not dragging the autocratic regimes into into the sunlight of liberal democracy, we're, we're tying ourselves to them and empowering them and enabling them to continue being bad actors on the world stage under threat of economic uh, disruption at home. Yeah, we pay, I mean, I guess what, what Freeland is arguing is that we should not enable them. We should just not do business with them. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, when you asked if, if, if this is representative of the view of the government, um, you know, I would say sort of, because, you know, this is not the view that's being espoused by, you know, the prime minister came after the fact and talked a little bit about how, how we like to do business with our friends. And, you know, in reality, companies across the country are looking um, at what happened during the pandemic and seeing disrupted supply chains all over the place and they're retrenching, right? They're, they're building up. It's all right. about resilience. It's no longer about efficiency. So they're building up supply chains all around them, including like near shoring or whatever you want to call it. It's regional supply chains um, and building up lots of inventory so that they don't have to be, um, you know, susceptible to risks uh, far away or in China or in Russia. So it's kind of happening anyway, but it's not necessarily happening because of liberal democracy. It's just in a shared values. It's just happening because because that's the way you do business. Um, so, you know, the prime minister has recognized that. He, he talked a little bit about it in different words and very um, much more accessible words. I mean, Christopher Freeland's speech was a very um, academic, I would say, and like laden with historical references as, as she's, I mean, it's very her. Um, so, so, you know, he kind of reflected it, but, you know, um, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, the innovation minister is, he has a bit of a vision of his own too, right? Which is um, he's got lots of money at his fingertips um, that he is using to uh, entice foreign investors to come into Canada and build up various supply chains here and make us, you know, to, to make Canada a leader in critical minerals and electric vehicle production. He's now talking about semiconductor chips, um, trying to do those kinds of things. So that's kind of his own way of doing kind of what Freeland was talking about. Well, it, but he's focusing on very specific supply chains. But at the same time, we've got um, Melanie Jolie, who is the uh, foreign minister, putting together this uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. So that is, um, you know, it's been a, 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 quite a while in the making, to, um, a, a foreign policy about how Canada should be engaging with China and, um, and, and the rest of Asia. And 
you know, I would say that she's heading in a direction that's not exactly uh, in line with with Christa Freeland. It's not, you know, the, the shades of gray here, but they are they are different. Um, you know, you just um, published a you just published a report on this mm -hmm. uh, the strategy that's that's coming together. Um, how how do they come together? And once it's released, once we see it, does that mean that it's got the the, the sign off from more hawkish senior ministers like Freeland and Champagne? Yeah, I mean, this exercise is uh, taking into account a lot of people's views, um, including other departments. It's not just run by foreign or by global affairs. Um, so yeah, when we when it sees the light of day, it will have gone had to had to go through cabinet, um, and it will also have you know the implications. There will be there will be money involved. There will be um, measures uh, involved. There will be you know we've got to there, there will have to be some actions if they're going to make real on this thing. I mean, when they actually publish it, I think it will be more uh, visionary, more um, you know, kind of like it was. It was said to me it will be like a throne speech as opposed to a budget. Um, a throne speech uh, typically lays out ideas and principles and explains them um, and commits to doing something, but doesn't actually outline specific measures. And so, you know, I think uh, the, 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 the sticky point will be exactly how much do we want to engage with China? Um, you know, there's no doubt that everybody is going to be signing on to the other part of this vision that Julie is 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 toying with, which is more engagement with the rest of Asia, um, diversify, you know, especially with Japan and Korea. Um, and then, you know, we already do a, quite a bit of business with Vietnam. Um, we've got to give some serious thought to India. Um, obviously, India is, is such a huge player in all of this, too. Um, but you know what? I, I think that's an easier sell than, OK, what do we do about, about China? Um, do we cut them off completely? Can we actually cut them off completely? And I think, you know, there's a realization um, with, with Jolie that, of course, we can't cut them off completely on many fronts. You know, we talk to them about climate change. We have to talk to them about the climate change um, and other other shared shared interests about how the world works. We just got to keep talking to them. And, you know, our business sector, we import a lot of stuff from China. Are we really going to be able to, I right. mean, it, that would be a very long project and a complicated project and an expensive project if we were trying, trying to source things everywhere else. Well, yeah, like Canadians are hurting right now economically. And this process, I'm sure, will last longer than the recession that we're, we're heading into. Uh, but will Canadians accept paying more for things once we democratize our supply chains? Oh, I like that expression, democratize our supply chains. Um, that's a very good question. You know, I mean, as you say, it'll take a while. Um, you know, those that are that will argue that, okay, you'll get an immediate bump in prices, but then we're not going to get, it's not going to be perpetually more expensive. So it's not going to drive inflation over the long term. But yeah, I mean, we are already fraying um, at, at, at because of higher costs. And a lot of that has to do with, um, the the dispute with with Russia, right? Like it, that is, uh, we governments around the world have decided to use economic tools to squeeze Russia. We're paying a price for that um, in terms of higher and get higher gas, higher higher oil, higher food, um, and commodities. Um, and you know, there our leaders have made the case that it's worth it because Russia is atrocious, but you know, the more time goes on, how much will we actually, you know, do people remember that? And, and, and obviously, we're, you know, all the 
all the fiscal monetary authorities are trying to work together to bring those prices down. So they realize that, you know, we can only take so much of that add on top of it, you know, another thing with China, uh, if we did it right now, it would be a a very tough sell. Well, that's something that that Freeland mentioned, I think when she used a a phrase uh, like, I I think it was, uh, we must be willing to spend domestic political capital to get these Mm -hmm. things done. And the first time I, read that speech, I thought she was just talking about pissing off environmentalists. But further on, th- up, you know, further reflection, things are going to cost more money, especially if you, if, as you cut off these, these bad international actors. And I'm not sure if it's more likely that we'll convince Canadians to spend more money or convince our democratic partners to make t-shirts for 30 cents. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, I hadn't thought of her comment in that, in that light, but yes, I mean, I think there are a lot of countries around the world that are engaged in this kind of thinking. Um, you know, uh, Freeland uh, explained later, I think, uh, after her speech, that the, part of the reason why she delivered that speech at that time in that place um, was because uh, friendshoring was actually on the um, agenda at G20. So people are talking about it, and and, and um, you know the European Union, the head of the uh, European Central Bank has talked about it, and Janet Yellen. Obviously, I mean these are no two-bit players, right? These are probably some of the most uh, powerful fiscal, uh, you know, economic decision makers in the world. Um, but I think when Freeland talked about the political having to spend some political capital, she was also referring to oil and gas there um, because, you know, obviously there is a huge pressure right now to uh, supply more gas uh, in to, to Europe. We have lots of gas. How are we going to do that? And how are we going to do it in a way that's uh, palatable to people in, in Canada who have you know, after much pushing and prodding from the Liberal Party itself, they've kind of bought into this agenda of like, we've got to cut back on that. So how do you do both at the same time? You know, how do we how do we meet our, our, our emissions targets, our environmental ambition, while also, um, you know, helping out our friends, which is what we apparently also want to do. Um, so it's hard to do both of those at once and keep everybody on side. Yeah, we've seen uh, a number of senior cabinet members holding events, making speeches, that are maybe broadly in, in line with this, uh, what they're calling the Freeland Doctrine. But one uh, ministry that we haven't heard very much from is uh, Minister Gilbo's office. If you're if you're in the uh, the Environment Ministry, how would this speech have landed? You know, I think they have done a lot of soul searching within the Liberal cabinet about this, uh, and there are um, certainly those who are, have been reluctant. Uh, more reluctant than others um, to actually say, okay, yes, let's produce more gas. Um, There's a certain reality here though, too, which is it's hard to just turn on the taps, right? I think like Jonathan Wilkinson, the natural resources minister has gone across the country. um, You know, when this whole thing started going down with Russia, he's gone, he went across the country to, to ask the oil and gas producers, how much can you, how much can you ration it up and let's just do it right now. And he did it. But it, it's not, you know, it, it's not very much. And so environmentalists like Stephen Gibo can probably feel okay about that, except for the fact that, you know, Europe is in, in dire straits, um, which, you know, I don't, nobody wants that. Nobody does. Um, 
And so they've kind of, you know, going forward, um, they've settled on a compromise, I think, which everybody seems to be able to live with, which is, okay, we will try to approve projects more quickly, but we won't compromise on our standards in, in terms of approving those, con those, those projects, and they have to be net zero. And that's hard. So, um, you know, it could be that you know, we've got a few projects that have been approved that are just still being built um, and they will come on stream and, and those will help Asia immediate, more immediately and help the global supply more immediately. And eventually that could benefit Europe. But this is all a few years in the making. I think people like uh, Minister Gibo um, is taking solace in the fact that that the standard is still, it has to be net zero and that, okay, yes, you know, the International Energy Agency says, yes, we will um, still be producing or the world will still need oil and gas even by 2050, just not, it'll be a lot less. Um, Mr. Gibo can be looking at that and saying, okay, if, if we have to have that oil and gas, it's gotta be from, from Canada, it has to be net zero. Yeah, our, our energy exports are an area uh, where I think there's broad alignment internationally, at least that we can we can do better. But we've also been described by allies as underperforming when it comes on to spending on other areas like aid and defense. Freeland might have credibility in this area, but do we as a country? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think it'll be interesting at the um, COP meetings coming up uh, in, in November on, on global emissions, where, where Canada will be under pressure again to um, come up with more money for developing countries um, on, on to help them get further faster on, on emissions reductions. Um, it's always uh, something on our agenda um, that we could always be doing more on that front. Um, you know, the appetite is endless. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about transition and, and, and in Canada where, you know, we are um, putting billions and billions, like 109 billion, I think they told me today, um, into, into the transition. You know, that's just us and and the rest of the world has got to do that transition too, right? And we, I mean, that's just us here in Canada. We're, we're actually blessed with all sorts of natural resources that can, you know, we don't just have oil. We have huge amounts of hydroelectricity and and obviously natural gas and, and uh, you know, heavy investment in clean energy as well. So, so, yeah, I mean, we're under a lot of pressure because we are so, because we are so blessed to have so much, so, so much abundant clean energy. Um, and then on defense as well, I mean, we have committed to NATO to do 2% of our, uh, spend 2% of GDP. Um, you know, we could kind of said, yeah, we'll do that one day. We're not doing it now. Um, and there's a, you know, we're not, we can't even, even if the government put the money in out there to the military to say, do it, they wouldn't be able to spend that account, that amount of money that fast. Um, so the defense minister, Anita Anand is working on how to do that, but you know, it seems to be a perpetual project. <laughs> so yeah, we're we're certainly uh, under the microscope for our, our 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 participation on that front too. So you know, when you put that together with uh, with Freeland's comments about about values and liberal democracy, um, yeah, I think you're right to be a little bit cynical about about how you know we're talking uh, you know about this wonderful concept, but also we have to play our our, our role in the world. Yeah, what does it look like? Like, how will we know that the government is actually delivering on, on these broad statements? Because a common criticism of this government is that it talks big, but deliverology is not something that it's great at. It, it doesn't really follow through on a lot of the big statements that it makes. 
Yeah, well, I guess we can watch the numbers, right? You know, if we, I mean, this is Christopher Freeland putting out an idea. If the government as a whole were to actually commit to friendshoring of some kind, then I would just, you know, be looking very hard at, okay, get your list of autocratic countries out there and see what happens to trade and investment over time. Um, it was interesting, though, during the really bad days of dealing with China there when they had the two Michaels in, in jail, our trade with them went up, even though China at the time was, you know, they were taking sanctions on us, right? They cut off our canola, our pork, our beef. Um, and it was it was really awful. It was really awful. It was it was awful for for business people going over there too. Just on practical terms, like you don't know if you're going to be the next person ending up in jail, right? Um, so, despite that, our trade with them went up. Really? Um, so we're not. <laughs> it's one thing to go in and have this great vision. It's another thing to actually make it work within the private sector and you know, a company that's just doing business, um, unless you have rules and regulations around that. And um, that might be a bridge too far for some people. So I'll, I'll keep going to my Mandarin lessons. <laughs> Probably a good idea. But you know, part of the Indo-Pacific Indo strategy will also be um, immigration. And obviously, we have a huge diaspora here in Canada already. Um, and uh, yeah, just say, you know, regardless of how much trade or investment we do with China, uh, we have a lot of people from there that live with us and may as well learn how to talk to them. I think that that's, that's totally fair. What does all of this mean for the jockeying to one day replace Justin Trudeau as the federal liberal leader? So that's a good question. I mean, I think that's a few years off. Um, he told his cabinet in August that he wants to run again. And, you know, the cynics among us would say, of course, he said that because he doesn't want to be a lame duck. But he made a point of saying it. So what was his point there? I think his point was to tell them, you know, his his would-be replacements um, to chill out a bit and to stand down and not actively organize. And, you know, I think um, I think the contenders kind of did that. Uh, there was, I mean, it's very raw in the Liberal Party, the memories of, of, Paul, of Paul Martin versus Jean Chrétien and how it, it, it really tore, tore that party apart. Um, and it led to their defeats. It, you know, they were they were almost ground to a halt there. They are very conscious. They don't want to do that again. And so when the prime minister says, don't get too carried away with this, um, they are want to listen. However, um, if, you know, he's he's been in power now for 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 seven years obviously it will come to an end at a certain point and if you actually want to have a serious chance of replacing him you have to build your networks and funding and all of that uh so that i think is still happening quietly in the background um you know nobody's out there with lawn signs by any means um but uh i think you know you know christopher Freeland is always assumed to be the front runner um it's not clear to me that she just, you know, we started out this discussion talking about whether or not she was campaigning for another job, right? Like, I'm, I'm not, sh I'm not sure if that's what, what she wants to do, um, but I haven't seen any sign of her, you know, really turning away from that. Um, obviously, Mélanie Jolie, uh, François Philippe Champagne, Anita Anand, as well in the defense uh, portfolio right now, um, they all seem to be very quietly interested um, and are working on, on putting together um, networks across the country. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see it out in the open for, for a while yet. I think uh, they would wait until the prime minister actually gives a signal and then they go take it from there. Even if things continue to slide domestically, 
if the economy continues to trouble people, I mean, if we're going into a recession, the popularity of the government has a ceiling. Yeah, I mean, the the parallels between recession and government unpopularity are not, I mean, it's a truism. I'm not sure if it's actually, if it's actually a real thing. Um, and I'm also not sure, you know, if we go into a recession right now, the projections are for two quarters of mild recession. Um, you know, if it were a very, very big, deep recession, for sure, they would be in trouble. A mild recession, I mean, there's certainly political discussion, political gamesmanship going on right now about that, you know, is whose fault is that? What should the government do? Should they stop spending altogether? Um, you know, and I think the liberals are, are walking a very fine line right now. Um, you know, they are hearing the calls internationally and within Canada to pay down the deficit. That's the opposite medicine that you normally have from the from a government when you're going into recession. Normally you spend to get your way out of the recession and they're not heading in that direction. But they are also, you know, they have a they have a windfall. They also from from so much uh, tax revenue over the past year, they I think will spend some of that on um, you know, very narrowly targeting um, some help and some programs for those who are most hurt by the recession and then hope that they can get through without too much damage. Heather, thanks so much for joining us today. Okay, my pleasure. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show was produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Kayla Duty, Matthew Barnes, Hunter Nifton, Jeff Costin, Jenny McElwain, and Zeus Eden. I'm your host, Adam Owen. We'll see you next time.